Hello again, everyone. Thank you for joining me for Season 3 of Uncommentary. This is your host for the entire season. My name is Marty Duran. Thanks for joining. Big shout out to my Patreons, my patrons, I suppose, at Patreon. And if you would like to be a supporter, or if you would just consider being a supporter, head on over to patreon.com slash uncommentary and do it right now. Hit pause, jump on over there, and make a commitment for a minuscule two or three or four or five dollars a month. Will cost you almost nothing, will be a tremendous help to me. Uh, in paying for audio work and scheduling and just some little bitty things that help make Uncommentary the uh, growing and good and hopefully even better this season podcast than it has been. Uh, if you'd like to give a one-time gift, head over to paypal.me slash uncommentarypod and you'll be able to make a one-time gift via your debit or credit card. And uh, that would also be greatly, greatly appreciated. Now for this week's episode. My guest today on Uncommentary is Pavel Zavisky from the Auschwitz Memorial Museum. Pavel is an important voice in World War II history and the Holocaust. With a degree in journalism from the University of Warsaw, he began his career working as a cultural journalist for Radio Z in 1999. In 2000, Zavisky began working for Polish Radio 2, where he was the author of programs about World War II, including photography in Auschwitz, grandchildren of, War, of the Warsaw Uprising, Uprising Fighters, and the Sonderkommando in Auschwitz. Since 2007, he's been the press and PR officer for the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum, where he's responsible for the museum's website, along with their social media. As PR officer, he was the editor-in-chief of the museum's magazine and is now the editor of a monthly magazine published by Auschwitz-Birkenau called Memoria. Pavel Savisky, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you very much for having me. Um, thanks for being here. You're, you're live from Poland and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name of the city where you are. What is the name of the city where you are? So right now I'm in Oświęcim, uh, which is the town in Southern Poland and, uh, except of the little bit over 800 years story of the town, the, the people usually know this place because of one historical event and one historical site, which is located uh, here, which is the Auschwitz Memorial. Mm. So I work at the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, which preserved the site of the former German Nazi concentration and extermination camp. Um, so that is uh, exactly what we want to talk about today. Um, there is uh, a, a long and difficult history uh, related to the Holocaust and what led up to it. Um, and the, probably the most famous for Americans is the word Auschwitz. It's, it's probably, I would venture to say the average American can only name one uh, extermination or death camp uh, from all, the entire rule of the Third Reich, and that's probably the, the only one. So tell us a little bit of the history of the camp, uh, when it was built, how long it was open, and those kinds of things. So uh, that's, of course, the whole question, how much time you have, because we could talk about it for hours. But I believe there is a limited time for you <laughs> and also for your listeners. But of course, uh, one part of the uh, of our activity as the memorial, as the also educational center is to uh, to make people lives a little bit more complicated, mm -hmm. because, as you said, uh, most of the people who come here and we have uh, 
a little bit over 2 million visitors coming here a year, and most of them come from outside of Poland. For them, the association is quite simple. Auschwitz equals the Holocaust, equals extermination of Jews in gas chambers. It's a death camp. And of course, they will be right. Auschwitz is one of the most important symbols of the Holocaust. But uh, the story of Auschwitz as a camp is much more complicated on one hand. And also, and something that you also pointed out that for average American, but also we can probably say for average person all around the world, if you ask them about one place which will be the symbol of either the whole concentration camp system that was built by German Nazis during the war or some kind of a symbol of atrocities during the Second World War, Auschwitz probably will be the name yeah. that they will use, if of course they know, because there are some polls uh, and some research done that less and less people have this knowledge. That's another issue and another topic for debate and discussion. But um, but also we need to remember that the story of the Holocaust itself is much more complicated than just one side of Auschwitz. We'll have other extermination camps. Mm -hmm. We have the story of the Einsatzgruppen and shooting of Jewish people in the Soviet territories. Mm -hmm. We have the story of the ghettos. We have uh, a far broader picture of the historical event which the Holocaust was. So when we talk about the Auschwitz itself, this story starts in spring of 1940, uh, when uh, so a few months after uh, Germans attacked Poland and started occupying Poland, and of course we have also the Soviet occupation in the meantime, and uh, one of the first goals of the uh, occupying German forces was to destroy Poland as a state and destroy also the Polish nation. Mm. And so what they are doing in the first few months of occupation is to target some specific groups of people. Um, so they, uh, the list that they created were the list of intellectuals, administration, politicians, officers, judges, lawyers, doctors, journalists, artists, Boy Scouts. So many people who, can be, who could be either a real threat in terms of uh, resistance or they could become like a spiritual threat to the mm -hmm. uh, new occupational regime. And many of those people are uh, targeted and arrested. Many of them are executed. But very quickly, the occupational authorities see the problem of overcrowded prisons. So they arrest so many people that the prisons are heavily overcrowded. Mm -hmm. And in order to solve this problem, they decided to set up a new concentration camp. Uh, it is also to remember, uh, uh, it's also important to remember that uh, Oświęcim, which was turned into Auschwitz, this is the historical German translation of the name, was in uh, was located in the territories that were annexed directly to the Third Reich. Because again, the situation gets more complicated if you try to point at some different locations of occupied Poland, because some of the Polish territories were directly annexed into the Third Reich. And some of the territories, including the capital city of Warsaw or historical capital uh, of Krakow, were turned into something called general government. It was like a protectorate structure. Mm -hmm. So, again, we have two different um, situations from the legal point of view. Also, the occupation was different. And so Auschwitz was located, the city of Auschwitz was located in the annexed territories. And the German authorities decided to establish this new camp for those Polish intellectuals, resistance fighters, soldiers and those people who were in those overcrowded places. so so originally and it was yeah so originally it was it was overflow so this was the solution to this overcrowded of prisons yeah. so that the new concentration camp was supposed to solve this yeah. uh, problem that the nazi occupiers had okay 
and the date which we consider to be the beginning of the story of Auschwitz is June 14th, 1940, uh, when 728 uh, Poles, including 20 Jews, uh, at least 20 Jews, are deported to this newly created camp. And then the story of Auschwitz begins, and the camp is slowly growing. The first numbers that Germans had in mind was that Auschwitz will become for 30,000 people. And uh, the, the, the camp is slowly growing. More and more and more prisoners are coming here. The mortality rate is very high because in the first six months of the operation, mortality was about 25 percent. Wow. And so so the camp is this very harsh place also of murder, of dehumanization, mm -hmm. because one of the things which is important when we talk about concentration camps is that people are dehumanized, that mm -hmm. human dignity is taken away by the uh, SS men that run the camp. And when we look at the story of the Third Reich, the story of occupation, but also the story of the persecution of Jewish people, we have a parallel line of events happening. And at some point, this line of anti-Jewish persecution will become parallel with the line of the story of Auschwitz. Mm. Because, of course, from the very beginning of the occupation, we can see that Polish Jews are persecuted. There is humiliation in the streets. There is violence and very brutal treatment. And from December of 1939, first ghettos uh, were created uh, in uh, occupied Poland. And uh, but but when Auschwitz starts, the, the Germans actually do not yet know what will happen with the Jews. The, mm -hmm. They are searching for the final solution, but this is not yet murder. In, in, then, uh, in German history, they had pressured uh, a lot of Jews to deport, or they had made the situation so unpalatable that many Jews had chosen to uh, emigrate away from Germany prior to the um, takeover of Poland. Is that correct? Yes, so of, of course, uh, what uh, we can see in the story of, of Nazi Germany is that the first solution to the Jewish problem, as they refer to it, was to force Jews out. Yeah. So they create the conditions of life in Germany simply impossible for the Jews to bear and forcing them to choose emigration. Mm -hmm. But then again, this whole story is far more complicated because while we can see uh, in 1930s that German Jews wanted to leave uh, Germany, uh, they have less and less places to go because the world is closed right. for such immigration. So that, that that's another problem. And again, when the war started, we can see that the Nazis had other plans. They thought about creating some kind of um, res places, well, we can call them probably reservations. Mm -hmm. We have the Nisko plan. So they, they plan to use part of the Lublin district of occupied Poland to create some kind of a Jewish settlement. Then they considered sending Jews to the island of Madagascar. They think about Ural Mountains or behind Ural Mountains. So they wanted to force the Jews out. And mm. somewhere in summer of 1941, uh, around the decision to attack or the, the, the beginning of the attack on the Soviet Union, the Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi regime makes the decision that because, on one hand, they consider Jews to be uh, the main enemy of the Aryan race. So there is this racial uh, racist struggle mm -hmm. between the Jewish race and the Aryan race. And then secondly, because they have no other solution of forcing the Jews out from the German controlled territory, the only way to deal with this problem of theirs is to murder the Jews. So we can see that the, the murder starts with the with the shooting in the uh, during the Soviet campaign, the Jewish men and later Jewish women and children were uh, were shot. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, so the Holocaust, as we understand it, the extermination of Jewish people, as we understand it, begins. And we can see in Auschwitz um, the 
development of uh, so different steps of development that led to the formation of first of all the method of extermination and then the fact that Auschwitz was chosen as one of these camps that were finally dedicated to the murder of the Jewish people as well. So of course we can see the uh, on, on on one hand we can see in summer of 1941 that because more and more prisoners in the camp are dying or are weak and mm -hmm. they cannot work and they were useless mm -hmm. for the camp but they were occupying the space which was always a problem the camp starts killing those people but in the but killing people one by one the the ss used a poisonous heart injection to murder those people who were useless and also people are shot and they're dying because of the conditions and the ss uh, the ss men started thinking that maybe they can find some quicker and more more efficient way mm -hmm. of killing people and this is where they decided to test a pesticide that was available here in the camp auschwitz used cyclone b for delousing uh, mm -hmm. from the very beginning so they decided to check if they can use this pesticide to kill a large group of people and there is a place that they chose to uh, perform this experiment the camp prison space in the basement of block 11 in auschwitz one and they locked there in early September of 1941 uh, 600 Soviet prisoners of war, because this is also the moment where Soviet soldiers are being sent from the POW camps in the east right. towards the concentration camps. Right. And also the camp hospital. Uh, uh, so the SS doctors who were there chose approximately 250 Polish prisoners who were didn't have a chance of recovery. Mm -hmm. So they decided to kill them. So they locked them in the basement of Block 11 and then... Uh, they put Cyclone B uh, there to check if it works. And do we do we know how many people were in the camp uh, total when this particular uh, mass murder took place? So of, of, right now I will not be able to give you the precise number, but this was already the time where Auschwitz had several thousand prisoners. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so the camp, the prisoners at that time, when this experiment, because Block 11 is in the, inside the camp, Mm -hmm. So we know from testimonies that when this experiment was happening, the prisoners were ordered to be inside the blocks, especially when the corpses were later transported through the camp to the crematoria building. Okay. So the, there was uh, some element of secrecy in this experiment. Uh, however, uh, it was done inside the camp. So that after several hours, the SS men checked and some of these people inside were still alive. They added more cyclone and again locked the basement for a few hours. And finally, this experiment was successful. Hmm. So uh, the camp created a method or a tool, technology, whatever name we choose, mm -hmm. to kill people in large number using the poisonous gas. And uh, a first gas chamber is created in Auschwitz a uh, little bit after that time. Now, were people, being, we have, were people being brought from uh, Poland by rail car at this time, or did that start later? So, uh, of course, rail was one possible way of transporting prisoners to Auschwitz to a concentration camp, but there could be also trucks uh, from, for example, prisons in Krakow or nearby, it depends from the distance. Okay. So rail was used and the, there was a little spur very close to the to the camp that was used for this purpose from the very beginning. Okay. And then, uh, so th there is a gas chamber in Auschwitz, the camp has a tool to kill groups of people. Mm -hmm. And then we can see that uh, the Nazi regime uh, around late 1941, early 1942, coordinates the operation of murdering the Jews. They shift the method because there were several other centers where gas chambers 
uh, were uh, used. So mm -hmm. we have Kumhofs, Vatagau, so another part of the annexed territories where mobile gas chambers were used. Mm -hmm. And then we have Lublin district of the general government when where they started using uh, permanent gas chambers with uh, engines that pump the fuel, uh, the gas, so engine fumes in, in, inside. So the Nazi regime starts coordinating all those local initiatives and they decided around spring of 1942 that Auschwitz will be the place where some of the Jews and later more and more uh, from more and more locations mm -hmm. will be sent for extermination. And so from March of 1942, we have different kinds of transports that are sent to Auschwitz, not transport of people mm -hmm. who are supposed to become prisoners of the camp, but transport of Jewish men, women and children who are delib deliberately sent for extermination. Wow. And we can see a, a, a parallel um, development of the extermination infrastructure within the system of Auschwitz. Uh, the, the SS moved the killing process from this first small gas chamber in Auschwitz I and they move it to the second part of Auschwitz, uh, which is Auschwitz to Birkenau or the Birkenau camp, mm -hmm. two kilometers away. And they start next to the concentration camp that is uh, uh, built there because the Birkenau was never, uh, it was always in development from late 1941 onwards. So near this camp that is uh, being built, they start creating a whole infrastructure of extermination. Wow. So at first, they used two cottages, two mm -hmm. village houses of the the village that had been previously expelled and most of the houses of the Poles that had lived here were destroyed to get building materials for the camp. But two houses are adapted to be very simple gas chambers and mass graves are located right next to those houses. Mm -hmm. And this is where the murder starts in spring of 1942. And in the meantime, the SS building office, so the, 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 the part of the camp administration that was responsible for development of the new buildings and whole infrastructure, they start designing four huge complexes of gas chambers and crematoria that are finally built in the late spring of 1943, and they are built in Birkenau. So this is this moment where extermination part of Auschwitz uh, and the concentration camp of Auschwitz merged. And of course, uh, I know this is very complicated because uh, Birkenau is just one part of the complex mm -hmm. and this is where all the extermination was finally developed. But again, we need to understand that this is one concentration camp with many locations right. and many parts. So what? I know that in this uh, short conversation that we have, it is very difficult to get you all the details and all the complications. But as I said, one of our... Very important roles is to 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 show this com complexity of the, the story of Auschwitz. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what did people think they were coming to when when they were rounded up? Whether they were uh, Polish Jews or not Jewish, but uh, but uh, you know ethnic Poles or, or others, uh, when they were rounded up, and whether they were put in a truck or whether they were put on a rail car. Where did they think they were going and what did they think was going to happen when they got there? So it depends who is deported and depends uh, when they're deported. Mm -hmm. Because we again have this complicated situation. When we talk about the, those first transports of Polish people who are sent to this concentration camp, it is clear for us that the uh, German, uh, German occupying forces wanted people so wanted the Poles who were uh, 
persecuted to know that something, a place like Auschwitz, Auschwitz, as I tried to explain, was one of those most important tools of terrors against the Polish population. So in a, in, in a certain way, they wanted people to have this association. I mean, if you don't follow the regulations of the new occupational regime, you can end up in a place like Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. or because, and there are several other concentration camps that were created, like Stutthof, Grossrossen, and, and several other places. So those people who, uh, those Poles who are sent from Krakow, so there are some rumors and some first information about Auschwitz circulating. And in a way, the Nazi regime uh, doesn't try to keep it all super secret. Mm. For example, when you open a telephone book of the district, uh, of this part of the next territories, and you will get to the uh, you know, a normal German telephone book and you will get to the Oberschlesien district and you would get to the county of Auschwitz, you would find a telephone number to the concentration camp wow. or the, the camp commandant office. So as a tool of uh, terror, this is a known place and people were supposed to be afraid and and this is the, the, the rule of, of terror that the Nazis implemented in occupied Poland. However, when we talk about extermination of Jews, the secrecy is much bigger and much more important. Mm -hmm. So this is the part of the activity of Auschwitz that is supposed to be far more secret. And, and again, the, the complicated part of the story is that we have different groups of Jews who are deported here because they're deported from different parts of occupied Europe. And while we may uh, we may interpret it like this, that the, the Jews who were, for example, sent from nearby territories, so ghettos created like in Benjin, which is 30 kilometers away from Auschwitz, or some places um, in occupied Poland, they may have heard some rumors about what Auschwitz was and that there is some kind of extermination happening there. But when we talk about the Jews deported from Greece, deported from occupied Netherlands, France, and some other very distant location, this knowledge is far, far uh, less. I mean, mm. they, they actually do not know where they're going. The name Auschwitz doesn't really tell them so much. Mm -hmm. And again, this, this, uh, this touches a topic of what people knew in general about this, because uh, while, of course, we know that thanks to the work of the resistance movement inside the camp, some information about this place was smuggled outside of the barbed wire for their to the resistant movement and this information was passed to the, uh, first of all, the leadership of the underground and then to the Polish government in exile and then it was shared with the allies. But it was on this high political level, some knowledge of Auschwitz exists. Mm -hmm. So still the knowledge of this place, especially far away uh, among the local population is much different. And there is another important thing when we talk about the development of the extermination program in Auschwitz. The SS men who were doing this job on the ground here very quickly understood one important aspect of this activity. Because, of course, when people talk about extermination, there was there was a lot of violence in this world. And it's it's well documented, mm -hmm. of course, and uh, uh, and so we we know about beating, we know about violence, shooting dogs, and so on. But um, the SS here, who were who who had to process those transports, very quickly understood that violence and large groups of people, because those transports of Jews had one thousand people, they were even bigger than this. And later, when we talk about 1944, we have transports of three thousand people in each train. Wow. Um, they understood very quickly that violence and large groups of people create one problem, 
problem not for the victims, but problem for them. Mm -hmm. It's panic. And they understood that having those large groups of people panicking is simply a logistical issue and, and, and a problem. It slows down the process and it makes this job difficult for them. And we can see very quickly that the we can see when we look at the how the extermination process developed that they turn it into the story of giving people hope wow so people who are deported to for extermination they are told that this is resettlement they are very often given very precise description of what can they take for the journey what kind of items are allowed what is not allowed how much luggage they can take so they are given this impression that this resettlement program is just the resettlement to the east they were promised new life new houses new jobs and so on and then when they arrived at auschwitz whatever place whether it will be the old platform between auschwitz and birkenau or the new platform built in 1944 that people usually uh, uh, have this visual knowledge because these are those iconic photographs of the uh, rail line entering the camp. This is yeah. a very late addition to the whole extermination logistics. So when people arrived, they were told by the SS, this is the place of your destination. Soon you will be sent to new uh, places of work and new houses. Please sign your luggage because after the shower you'll have to will have to deliver your property back and then follow the instructions because what we need to do is to go is to take you to the disinfection process yeah. so that you you could have a shower so the germans told those jews who arrived that well we we want to look after your health you have to go to disinfection and then you will be leaving somewhere somewhere here and then the process of selection starts mm. And um, people were divided into two groups. So men and older boys were on one side, women and children on the other side. And uh, when we look at those photographs uh, of, the, of those two columns mm -hmm. of people standing on the platform, we, we need to remember that this is the moment where we know that most of these people will never see each other again. But also we need to, we need to remember that those people have no awareness of this process. And then as as doctors, start the process of selection. They need to choose who will become a prisoner of the camp. And this is usually approximately 20, 25% of the Jews who were deported. And then around 75, 80% of people are sent straight to the gas chambers. You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is uh, Pavel Savisky. He's with the Auschwitz-Birkenau uh, Memorial and Museum in Poland. And we'll be right back after this. If you'd like to place an ad on an episode of Uncommentary, please email Marty Duren, M-A-R-T-Y-D-U-R-E-N, no dashes, dots, or underscores, at yahoo.com, Marty Duren at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to email you a rate sheet, and we can talk about a 15-second, 30-second, or 60-second ad on an upcoming episode of Uncommentary. Let me know, and we will work it out. Now back to this week's episode. Uh Pavel, why don't you continue with uh, the selection process and what happened after that? So the SS doctors on the platform decide who will become a prisoner and who will be killed immediately in the gas chambers. And when we look at this photograph, this is uh, one of the most important and most tragic part of the story because we can see real doctors, people who went through medical universities, people who swore, swore Hippocratic Oath, and then because they believe in this ideology of superiority of one race mm -hmm. over another uh, group of people, and then this, this ideology of hatred, they are able to do what they're doing. 
And so they sent those people to death because they believe in this ideology. And then most of the people went straight to the gas chambers. And mm-hmm. this is something, again, when we talk about numbers of people who were deported, this is something very important to emphasize and remember that out of approximately 1.3 million people who were deported to Auschwitz and 1.1 million of them were Jews, only 400,000 people became prisoners of the concentration camp. So 400,000 people received numbers, striped uniforms, and they lived in the camp. And of course, many of them perished in the camp because of the conditions, executions, Mm -hmm. diseases. And 900,000 people never became prisoners. Those were the people who went through the selection process and went straight to the gas chamber. Wow. So 900,000 people. And in this case, although, of course, when we talk about the concentration camp, we talk about many groups of victims because we have Jews, Poles, Roma, Soviet soldiers and uh, other people as well. So people from uh, several different countries. The selection process is the process of the extermination center. So only Jews who are deported to Auschwitz for extermination, go through the selection process. So 900,000 Jews never received a number, never received even this chance of survival, and they were murdered immediately in the gas chambers. Wow. So those groups, either on tracks or walking, because again, it changes in the system, mm-hmm. they go to towards the area of the gas chambers. And when the system was already well developed, the, usually the story was that they arrived at the isolated yard of gas chambers and the crematoria, the yards that looked uh, innocent, that Mm -hmm. we know from testimonies that there was grass there and sometimes even flower beds and some places to sit and and taps with water. And the SS told to those people, you know, the shower isn't ready yet, we're preparing this, but you can rest a little bit, you can sit down. So they count people down. And only then they tell them that they should go inside the undressing space and uh, take off their clothes and go to the shower. And they also told people that inside the undressing space, there will be hooks with numbers and they should remember all the uh, numbers where they put their clothes because after the shower, they'll have to go out quickly, Mm -hmm. find their clothes, leave the building because another group is waiting and they should hurry up because coffee or soup is cooked for them. It will get cold. So people are given this illusion Mm -hmm. all the time. Hope is a weapon here. And then naked people go inside the gas chamber and then the door is closed and the trap is closed and they have no no escape. And then cyclone B, so the pesticide, is uh, dropped into the gas chambers and after approximately 30 minutes, people are dead. Mm. And then uh, one of the most tragic part of this process is that, of course, the SS guards did the killing, but then the rest of the process, the dirty work, cleaning the gas chambers, mm-hmm. removing all the personal items from the undressing spaces, searching the bodies for any valuables or cutting the hair of the victims. This was the job that prisoners were forced to do. And this is the story of the Zonderkommando, yes. a special work unit. Mm-hmm. These are these were mainly Jewish prisoners who were forced to do this horrible work. And they were emptying the gas chamber. They were processing the corpses. They were burning the corpses either in the crematoria or in burning pits, and then they were also responsible for uh, removing all the ash. So we can see that uh, there is a system of industrial murder Mm -hmm. slowly developed in this world of Auschwitz. So uh, what I try to describe from the very beginning is that we have, in a way, two, or even maybe even more worlds, but two parallel realities of Auschwitz. The Auschwitz as a concentration camp that has its own 
line of development, and then Auschwitz as an extermination camp that develops as well. And this all happens in one space and a place with one name. And this is what makes this story a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. About how many people um, are thought or known to have died from the time that Auschwitz uh, opened until the time that uh, it was either abandoned or liberated uh, as the Allies moved closer? So, first of all, the number of deported people, as I said, is approximately 1.3 million. Mm-hmm. And then among this large number, approximately 1.1 million Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, those are Jewish people who were deported from many different countries. So they were citizens of many different states before the war, but they were uh, marked as Jews by the perpetrators. So gotcha. the, the Nazis themselves decided who they considered to be a Jewish mm-hmm. person. So they are one group of uh, victims then uh, so we have 1.1 million jews approximately 150,000 poles 23,000 sintian roma so the gypsies mm-hmm. we have also 15,000 of soviet soldiers and 25,000 uh, people that we refer to as others people from uh, many different nationalities uh, that were among these uh, prisoners of auschwitz and then when we talk about the number of victims it is estimated that approximately 1.1 million people were uh, murdered in Auschwitz. Wow. And then around 1 million will be Jews. Uh, and these Jews died both in during the extermination and as prisoners of the concentration mm-hmm. camp because of the selection process I described. Mm-hmm. Then we have around 75,000 Poles that are killed in Auschwitz, a little bit over 21,000 Sinti and Roma, uh, almost 15,000 Soviet prisoners of war, and about... Twelve and a half thousand of those other prisoners. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, uh, these are the the numbers that our historians um, uh, already. Well, this is of course always the estimation because many documents were destroyed by DSS during the evacuation. But thanks to analyzing different sets of documentation, we were able to establish uh, these numbers. And and this is something that uh, also makes the story of Auschwitz, but also the symbol of Auschwitz, so important for uh, for actually the entire world. Because when we talk about Auschwitz as a memorial today, uh, Auschwitz as a place where people come to commemorate, we can see that there are many different layers of memory in this mm. place. Mm. So as, you, as we started talking at the very beginning, Auschwitz is one of the most important symbols of the Holocaust, or the extermination of the Jewish people. And uh, this is one part of the story we need to remember. But Auschwitz is also a very important place in the story of the occupation of Poland with all uh, all the of the Poles that were deported here. Uh, we This is a very important place for the Sinti and Roma community because Auschwitz is the symbol of uh, mass murder of Sinti and Roma perpetrated by the Nazis during the Second World War. We have the story of Soviet soldiers. We have the story of Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, although it's a small number of mm-hmm. prisoners or a very small number of homosexuals that were also deported here, but there will be many different memories in this one single uh, universal mm-hmm. symbolic sphere that we call Auschwitz today. And it it is the direct result of this development that I try to describe that so many different elements of the uh, Nazi ideology, Nazi persecution met in this one single concentration camp and extermination center. How many people were uh, were still alive when the camp was finally uh, liberated or it was abandoned and then eventually uh, the Allies showed up? 
So this is again uh, not an easy uh, question to answer because we have two two stories here. One story is of those Auschwitz prisoners who are evacuated in uh, January of 1945 before the Soviets arrived. Okay. Approximately 56,000 prisoners uh, leave to the death marches a few days before the Soviets arrived. Wow. Also, before that, there were many prisoners of Auschwitz who are simply transferred to other camps. Okay. So, of course, despite they were later liberated in many other places, they are also Auschwitz survivors because mm -hmm. they spent some time as prisoners of this concentration camp. And then when the SS uh, abandoned the, or evacuated the camp in January of 1945, they, uh, they uh, left approximately 7,000 prisoners within the Auschwitz system. So all the camps and subcamps of the system. And those people were liberated by the Soviet army on or around January 27, 1945. Um, so we are talking about more or less 7,000 people who are physically present when the liberation took place. Uh, and so then it is very difficult to say, first of all, how many survivors are there because, first of all, how many survivors were there because of yeah. this different relocations of prisoners of Auschwitz uh, in the story of the camp itself, because prisoners of Auschwitz were moved to other camps much earlier than this, because this is how the concentration camp system works, that the SS needed sometimes slave labor in different locations. And then, of course, we have the evacuation and the death marches. So this is very difficult to say even how many Auschwitz survivors were there at the end of the war. We may estimate we're talking about tens of thousands of people, but no one is able to give the number. And of course, therefore, no one is able to give the number how many survivors are there with us today. There, there are survivors, of course, and we still live in the time where we have this great privilege to be able to listen to mm -hmm. to their stories and their personal experience. But this is this uh, very difficult time where we can see that the nature consequences of of years passing by are leading to this moment where we will not have people around us who will be able to tell us firsthand about what happened to them mm -hmm. in uh, in Auschwitz. And this is something very important because when we try to understand this world, we, we have to use numerous different sources of information. Mm -hmm. Of course, we can tell that we can learn a little bit of the story thanks to the German documents or the SS administration documents. But of course, we need to remember that we, uh, the, the SS not necessarily told the entire truth in their documentation, and many of the documents were destroyed. Mm. So we can also use the uh, materials gathered by the resistance, so prisoners who try to collect information about the camp when this was an ongoing process. And of course, another important source is the survivors' testimonies right. and their words. And as on, on one hand, of course, we can say that the, the human memory is also... Um, not accurate enough, our brains are not tape recorders, but the survivor stories uh, are those stories that give us the human experience of this place. And this is one of the most important memory that mm -hmm. we can deal with, because this is a human story. When we, uh, It is not the story of numbers. It's not the story of statistics. This is the story of human suffering. And on this level, people can understand this much uh, better. So, of course, we need to always remember to look at the testimony and hear the stories. I, I always compare it to when you have a 
painting. There is a frame and there is everything in the middle of the frame. Mm -hmm. So in our case, the frame is all the, you know, solid factual information about Auschwitz we have, the dates, the numbers, the documents, the numbers of victims, the, the whole chronology that we can get from lots of different sources. So this is the frame that we have. But all the colors in this picture that we call Auschwitz and the human experience of Auschwitz are the stories of the survivors, mm -hmm. are the stories of of people who went through this horrible place and were able to share uh, their personal um, experience with us. There was uh, immediately following World War Two, I guess there was the um, uh, the cry "Never forget" uh, became popularized, uh, but recent. Uh, polling, at least in the United States, I'm not sure about the whole of Europe, but uh, at least in the United States, the polling indicates that younger people don't have a good uh, idea about what the Holocaust even is. Uh, what's the danger of us forgetting what happened in the 1930s and 40s? Um, when we look at Auschwitz on a more universal level, um, as a memorial today and as a place where people come to commemorate and to learn the story, of course, first of all, we uh, our goal is to commemorate the victims. Mm -hmm. And this is the story that we're talking about. But when we look at this story from a more universal level, uh, this place is also a warning. And because we can see what can be the result of this extreme ideologies of superiority of one people over another group of people and the, the ideology of hatred. Mm. And also, when we, take a, when we talk about Auschwitz as a human story, we also need to look at the perpetrators. Because somehow it's a very easy uh, way out to tell, oh, these were monsters who did all those horrible things, and they, they are not people, and they are deviants, and you can find all those different names. But we, we need to remember that people who perpetrated the crimes were people like you and me. Mm. And they, at some point of their lives, they were poisoned. They were, you know, encountered with this ideology. They believed in this ideology. And at some point of their lives, they decided to participate in this world. And this is the warning for us. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, of course, this is important that we learn all these facts. But I think it is possible to at least ask. I'm not saying that we will be, will be able to answer all those uh, universal questions about us, humanity, and the role of hatred, and those uh, extreme ideologies that that existed before Auschwitz and existed uh, after Auschwitz. Uh, but at least this is the place where we can try to show these questions. Mm. And uh, the danger of, of, of forgetting is uh, is something that we need to have in mind. And because this is a when we look at it from a more, well, human or anthropological, psychological point of view, when we see how history is passed from generation to generation, right. and this is, this is the story of the grandparents and grandchildren story. I mean, this is when, when we think about our history in our families that is, you know, passed around the, uh, you know, table when we meet with our family members when we sit together with with uh, you know all the family members right. this, we remember the story on a personal level uh, from this from the perspective of our grandparents mm. not really so much from the perspective of our great great grandparents of course this is not a hundred percent accurate sure. but 
this is ge generally how it is. So when we look at the young people who come here today, those young people who study this story, who study the story of the Second World War, who study the story of the Holocaust, the story of Auschwitz, we have people who are coming here whose grandparents are born after the war. And for them, the story of the war, the story of Auschwitz, stops being the story uh, that they heard about in this more family, mm -hmm. informal circles. So, you know, my grandmom told me the story of the war right. uh, or something like this. And it, it becomes the story from the textbooks. And this is a completely different challenge yeah. on the educational level. So, of course, on one hand, we, we can say that they are on one hand dangerous of forgetting because people live in a different world and we are far more disattached from this historical event because it happened over 70 years ago. But uh, in a way, th there's also different kind of processes of memory that are uh, that we also need to take into consideration when we try to find a way of educating about, uh, about this place. So I think also one of the ways we can try to um, at least avoid this. I don't know if this is the process that we'll be able to completely reverse or that we will, uh, that the story, that the story of Auschwitz or the story of the Holocaust will be, you know, known by everyone. Right. Uh, probably this will not be the case. But I think that uh, trying to move from this level of, uh, of course, always um, teaching about those dates and facts and mm -hmm. trying to show some kind of chronology and, 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 and how this place uh, de developed and how it functioned, but also trying to find those personal stories, those stories that we can all somehow associate it with as human beings is one of those ways that maybe people will not remember all those dates and numbers and facts, mm -hmm. but they will rem remember the emotions when they heard about someone suffering. And I think that, uh, you know, there are over 2 million people visiting the memorial and I guide many of them who come here. I'm, uh, there are all, all, over 300 people that every day try to tell the story of, uh, of Auschwitz mm -hmm. to all the visitors. And I think that, of, of course, this is a lesson of history, but you can somehow learn about Auschwitz everywhere in the, in the world. You can, you know, today we have Internet, we have books. So, of course, you will be able to learn about many of those things just by reading it. But coming here and listening to these stories here is also a personal experience and something of this personal experience will always stay because it's it's not this factual memory that we remember it it becomes part of our emotional memory mm. and this is something important that we can also use in in education but uh, this is of course the very challenging time and uh, i don't really have uh, you know a remedy or you know, we know what will happen in, in five and ten years in terms of how people will remember about this place. My guest today on Uncommentary has been Pavel Savisky. I uh, hope I said that close to right, Pavel. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being with me today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Uncommentary. I really appreciate you stopping by. Big shout out to James Peach, my audio engineer, and my daughter Abby, who helps with the scheduling. If you're not yet following Uncommentary on Twitter, please do so at UncommentaryPod, or you can even follow me at Marty Duran, both on Twitter, both pretty active. If you have not rated and reviewed in iTunes or your favorite podcaster, that would be a huge encouragement and a blessing. So please do that when you get just a moment of your time. Again, if you would like to support Uncommentary via Patreon or paypal.me slash UncommentaryPod, 
and make a one-time gift there. Or you can go to patreon.com slash uncommentary and sign up for a monthly draft of whichever size you really want, starting at about two bucks. And that would be greatly appreciated as well. Until the next time, Sobadeo Gloria. <laughs>